Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, how's it going out there? Welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. I have a bit of a cold. I don't know if you can hear it, but uh, it's there. I'm doing all right. I hope you are doing all right. Thank you for listening. I have another great episode for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. My guest today is Tess Gunty, author of the debut novel, The Rabbit Hutch. Yeah, I guess what happened was I, I had submitted this other thing that I'd been working on really, really intensely for, for over a year at that point to my workshop with, with Rick, and he just tore it apart. And he was just like, this is a, this... He, he basically told me to start over and I was really depressed after that and I couldn't really write for a couple weeks. And by the time it was my turn to submit something again, I didn't have anything except for this secret project I'd been working on. And so I had to submit it. And he was like, this is your project. This is the thing you need to be working on. Okay, that was Tess Gunty. Her debut novel is called The Rabbit Hutch. It is now available in trade paperback from Vintage. In fact, the paperback was published just yesterday. The Rabbit Hutch is one of the most celebrated debut novels in recent memory. It received the 2022 National Book Award for Fiction. It also received the Barnes & Noble Discover Prize and the Waterstones Debut Fiction Prize. Along with that, it was a finalist for the John Leonard Prize and the British Book Award for Debut Fiction. This is a sprawling, polyphonic novel of, I guess you would say, maximalist ambition. And it takes place over the course of a single week in July in the fictional town of Vacaville, Indiana, a once-thriving industrial outpost that has now gone the way of so many Rust Belt cities in the United States. The novel's title, The Rabbit Hutch, is the name of a low-income housing complex in Vacaville. And as the story unfolds, we meet several of its residents whose lives end up intersecting in a variety of ways. 
at the heart of this book is a strikingly intelligent young woman named Blondine who has aged out of the Vacavale foster care system and now lives in the rabbit hutch with three teenage boys who are in a similar situation. And really that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what this book is and what it contains. It's very difficult to encapsulate it. You sort of just have to read it. What I can tell you is that it is a remarkable novel, all the more so for being Tess Gunty's debut. And I am very happy to have had the chance to talk with her about this book of hers and about the extraordinary success that she has had early on in her career. My conversation with Tess Gunty is coming up in just a bit. Before we get started, if you would like to receive my free once-a-week email newsletter, I want to give that a plug. You can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlesty.com. It's once a week. I email you. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So it's pretty painless. It's pretty straightforward. If you want to get the newsletter, go sign up for that. And if you would like to support this show, you can do so over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep it going. Once again, that's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So my guest, once again, is Tess Gunty. Her debut novel, The Rabbit Hutch, is now available in trade paperback from Vintage. It is the recipient of the 2022 National Book Award for Fiction. Tess Gunty is a graduate of New York University where she was a Lillian Vernon Fellow in its MFA program in creative writing. Her work has appeared in a variety of publications, including the Iowa Review, Joyland, the LA Review of Books, and more. The Rabbit Hutch was named one of 12 Essential Reads of 2022 by The New Yorker magazine, and it was named a Best Book of the Year by The New York Times, NPR, People, Time, Lit Hub, The Chicago Tribune, Kirkus, and other publications. I had such a nice time meeting Tess Gunty and talking with her, and I'm excited to share that conversation with all of you right now. So let's get to it. Here she is, folks. This is Tess Gunty, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called The Rabbit Hutch. And you grew up in South Bend, right? That's right. In, in like an academic family, your mother was an art teacher, or maybe still is. I don't know if they're still she doing just, this. She just retired, but yeah, she was. Yeah. And uh, your father, a sociology professor. Mm-hmm. So I love it. I love like hearing about the kind of creative DNA of a writer on the show, in particular when I feel like the puzzle pieces like lock into place really well. Like that makes sense to me when I read your book. <laughs> like there's a sociological bent to this novel. Mm. And then the fact that you had an art teacher mother, like that never hurts. Like no. having a creative parent who also knows how to like teach creativity, like had to be beneficial to you growing up. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she was um, really free. She just created this totally free atmosphere in our household to create. So there was no fear of making a mess. There was no fear of failure she really just encouraged us to experiment and to, you know, to make messes, to fail. My brothers are all musicians and uh, my, one of my brothers is also a visual artist. And I think there was just always tons of 
creative mess going on in my house. Like my mom at one point, South Bend was trying to do this campaign where it was um, doing, you know, like the the cows of Chicago, the painted cows. They were trying to do chimps in our town. Wait, I don't know this. What is this? Oh, they're just, I don't even know if they're there anymore, but there used to be a bunch of painted cows, like large painted cows throughout Chicago. I think they were cows. And I haven't seen them since I was a child, but so they must have gotten rid of them. They were like these massive statues all over the place and they had like really funky painting. And so someone was like, let's do chimps for South Bend. And so they got these like just enormous statues of chimps. And my mom was asked to make one. And so there was just this uh, massive statue of a chimp in our dining room for about three months one summer. And one time I came home, I like woke up in the morning, was going down to get a glass of water and it was just the eyes were painted and it was just this massive, like, <laughs> and you know, there were always cups of paint water on the table. And I came home one day and my mom was like carving into the, our floor, our wood floor, carving like a leaf pattern. Cause she just got bored of it at the, of the wood. So yeah, it was, a, it was a very free creative place and they both really encouraged drawing, reading, writing. So was that's that. interesting. I mean, it's interesting to think about somebody being like super intensely Catholic and devout and going to church twice a week, but also being like creatively liberated. Like, yeah. not that it can't happen, but I just don't hear that. I don't yeah. see that or hear that very often. They're also know? Democrats. They were like kind of lifelong, you know, intergenerational Democrats, kind of working class, like German, Irish, Catholic families. And that's also something that for it used to be common, but for some reason it's kind of um, dying out, it seems. But yeah, they, I don't, I think for them, they saw both of my parents, I mean, they're very different, but they, I think they saw religion as a kind of like a portal into social justice. And so it was, it was never presented to me as, as something that was at odds with creativity, but, but I guess, yeah, that is rare. So Young Tescanti wants to be a mystic. He's <laughs> reading about the lives of medieval, mostly female mystics, or mm-hmm. yeah, which is endearing. <laughs> uh, that's very earnest, <laughs> right? You were a very devout child. I mean, you're right. I was, yeah, I was. I was really. I mean, obviously, by the time I was 15, I sort of went through all of the like as a child. Child, I was like, I'm going to be a nun. I really, I was so obsessed with prayer and like and. And yeah, this this quest to be a mystic. But then, by the time I was fifteen, I was pretty radically rejecting uh, rejecting Catholicism. What happened? I think I just became gradually more aware of the kind of hypocrisy of the institution. I think that the kind of Catholicism that was uh, modeled in my household was not modeled in my community at all. So it was like uh, really hypocritical, very very conservative, very judgmental, very intolerant kind of rule-based dogma-based um that would like that was what was presented in in religion classes that was kind of what i was learning in in church that was what my friends a lot of my friends were most of my friends were catholic but they they didn't have that kind of intense like relationship with the religion that my parents did and so what i i saw was kind of um i don't know i guess i saw not only was the church kind of beginning to reveal the the sex abuse scandals around that time, or I was becoming aware of them around that time. And that was really upsetting. But um, also the, like, I was just increasingly aware of the patriarchy of the church and the ways in which like it made um, so many people feel 
harmed and alienated and, you know, and I really thought that the kind of teaching on, on like almost everything was, was just at odds with how I wanted to live my life other than the Catholic social teaching, which I found compelling. Right. Yeah. I can relate to that. I get frustrated with it at the level of language and like the resistance to sort of evolving. And I get frustrated feeling like it could be so much better Yeah. if there weren't so much intransigence and unwillingness to sort of acknowledge some of the grimmer realities, but also like some of the newer realities, you know what I'm saying? Like, as we mm -hmm. learn more about what, what's going on around here, I feel like these institutions just, they get really big and monolithic and, and male yeah. <laughs> and they just don't want to change. Yeah. Yeah. They, the, the church, especially, I mean, like even this Pope who is, you know, he's like the cool Pope, the cool Pope for me. Yeah. <laughs> and still like teachings on, you know, women becoming priests or, you know, people who are homosexual being accepted. Like all of that is just so far behind uh, where it needs to be in order to create like an equitable uh, place that actually practices what it preaches. But it, it's, I think because of the kind of age of the church and the way that tradition gets lauded and praised and people are so afraid of change within any kind of structural, like the fact that, what was it? The massive, there was this kind of massive change recently to go back to a more, you know, the prayer, what is it? The apostolic prayer, something, some of the, one of the major prayers that you have to recite during mass. I'm sure I, I know it. If you said it, I would, you know, I, I could God. probably recite it with you. Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. Well, it's, oh God, I haven't been to church in so long. I used to go, I feel like, anyway, it was one of them changed. Like when I was in high school, like the words that you had to say, or maybe it was in, yeah, when I was in high school. And um, it was only to go back to a version that was supposed to be like closer to the original Latin. So even when it when the church changes, it's like it seems like a regression sometimes. Yeah. It's frustrating. Yeah. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So you start to break away from the church as a 15-year-old. You're in Catholic high school. Yeah. Your mother is an art teacher at this school, correct? That's right, yeah. 
And then, like any good apostate, <laughs> you went to Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, to further your Catholic education. But your father is a professor there, right? Is that? Yeah, he works in administration, and then he would teach a class like every every semester, and then during the summer. So his main job was administrative, but he taught sociology. And how did the sociology? Did that? I mean, that's obviously what our parents do and who they are factors greatly into who we become. But I'm just curious, like creatively, like do you see ways in which the work that he does in sociology affected you and you internalized it? Absolutely. I mean, I think from a young age, my dad is also just a really kind of intellectually curious person and he's always interested in talking things over and, and giving very thoughtful responses. And we didn't know, when he didn't know an answer to a question, he would go to the encyclopedia and we'd read it, you know. So I think first and foremost, he created an atmosphere of, of curiosity where questions were rewarded and the pursuit of knowledge was just as important as any kind of inherent, you know, intellectual powers we might have had. But also, I think from a very young age, he, he we were we were taught to think about systems in and to kind of link behavior that we are seeing on a micro scale to whatever macro forces might have might have caused it. For example, you know, I was raised in two different neighborhoods that were both quite neglected, like most of the people who were living there were living at or below the poverty line. And especially in my first neighborhood, a lot of the our neighbors were suffering from really extreme forms of um, intergenerational neglect, whether it was a mental illness that was maybe aggravated by stressors in life and then wasn't able to be treated, or addiction that was kind of fed by uh, a series of you know, despairing circumstances, and then also like having no other recourse toward uh, escape or health or violence. There's a lot of gun violence in both of my neighborhoods. And I think that we were always kind of trained to think about this violence as a result of a greater neglect of a kind of structural violence that was being done to people rather than a result of kind of meritocratic failures uh, of the individuals at play. And my dad also was especially interested in the socialization of violence. He, he I guess he entered sort of sociology from an, an interest in peace building movements, global peace building movements, but that led him almost immediately to the socialization of violence, which led him to the way that masculinity is socialized in various cultures. And so I was the only girl in my family of three older brothers. And my dad, I was, I was always very aware that my dad was trying to raise my brothers and me really with the kind of uh, against these, I guess, socializing forces around us that were hyper-masculine, you know, hyper-aggressive, and then, you know, boys and men should not show emotions, that violence was some kind of form of of expression, of emotional expression or whatever. So I think so many, so many ways. But he, he also just, like I said, was was interested in the structural failures that ordained kind of interpersonal failures. Well, a couple things. First of all, when it comes to the way that we raise boys in our culture, that feels ahead of its time. Yeah. Like those insights and that approach to raising sons in particular, but also to raising a daughter, you know, with that kind of awareness feels ahead of its time. I feel like we're starting to catch up generationally. I think there's more of that among my peers. Uh, I'm a bit older than you, but, you know, I feel like we're getting a little bit more tuned into that frequency now in a broad sense. 
And then, you know, everything you just said is really at the core of your novel, the way that structural violence creates interpersonal violence, the rabbit hutch. I mean, the title of the book alludes to that, right? And then that great epigraph from the Michael Moore documentary about the rabbits, you know, the male rabbits in close quarters, eventually castrating one another, (laughs) you know, but it's, and it's a, and it's a mystical uh, thing at the heart of it and a very, to me, it feels like the square root almost of like all religious traditions and mystical pursuits, like everything affects everyone. Hmm. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's what that sociological stuff that we were just, you know, you were just talking about speaks to. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah. I, I think that is a really common teaching of pretty much every major religion as a kind of like, there's a collective responsibility here. Uh, yeah. And I think also I was really like, we're in a weird moment right now where fiction, everything really is very, um, it's very like self-driven. I don't know how to, how else to describe that. I feel like that's not a very accurate way to put it, but I mean, there's a lot of kind of exoneration of the self and a barricading inside of the self's most superficial experiences. And I think that resulted from like the CIA's infiltration of, of like writing programs during the cold war to, you know, influence, influence the ways that the narratives that the kinds of narratives that were being told in America at the time, like I just learned about this. So wait, let's get, yeah, cause just for people listening who are like, yeah. Whoa, I think, Tess just took a bong hit and started talking about the CIA. <laughs> but like, uh, this is true. This is yeah. one of these great, crazy, it's like truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't believe it when I first heard about it. And it was, I only just heard about it like a, a couple of years ago. Yeah. But it was like the fears of communism were so extreme that, um, and also it was kind of endearing that fiction mattered at that time. <laughs> mid-century. Like, we're talking mid 20th century, right? Yeah. They were like worried about what fiction writers were doing, which is not happening anymore. But um, (laughs) this is a governmental issue. Um, But yeah, it was like there were there was a lot of I think it was the Iowa Review. I mean, the Iowa, you know, Writers Workshop and then the Paris Review are the two that I know of. But it was other places as well where the um, there was an effort to encourage, you know, tales of the kind of rugged individual nuclear family and discourage uh, narratives of the of like collective, you know kind of proletariat uprising type thing. And, uh, and I think that paired with like, you know, in the fifties, there was the rise of suburbia and these kinds of like withdraw into much more isolated sort of nuclear family units. And then the rise of brand management and social media and the way that digital personas are encouraged and uh, like disseminated. I think that that has all created, and then also paired with a kind of really overdue reckoning with uh, cultural appropriation has pushed a lot of writing toward just write about yourself, write about your own experiences. Just don't, you know, there's obviously a huge rise of autofiction right now. And there's a lot of autofiction I adore. And I don't think that all of this movement has been, I mean, there've been really good and necessary things that have come from this kind of this movement. But when I was writing the rabbit hutch, I was, I just never felt at home in autofiction and I, I want to read it sometimes, but I don't think I, I, at that time, certainly in my early twenties, I didn't want to write it. And so there's also an effort to write towards something more collective. Definitely. You feel that like the way that I characterize it to myself, I'm on, I mean, it's reductive and you know, the way we kind of shorthand our experience of, of a work of art. I'm curious to know if you've ever heard this comparison, but in my head, I was like, 
this is like the Rust Belt Magnolia or like the Midwestern <laughs> Magnolia. Has anyone ever made that comparison for the you? Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Yeah. yeah. A lot of people. And I hadn't seen it actually until after I published the book and people kept saying, you've got to see Magnolia. And I, I've, I fucking enjoyed it. Although I think it, the reason that there are these similarities is because we are both very influenced by David Foster Wallace. And so oh. David Foster Wallace was his teacher at one point, I think, um, Paul Thomas Anderson's teacher. And David Foster Wallace hated Magnolia. He, he said like the, the worst things about it. He said something like grad schoolish in the worst way or something. So, so mean. I loved it. Sorry. I did too. I had a, uh, I had like, you know how you have like certain cinematic experiences that really stay with you. There's just a few, like I, mm -hmm. the fact that I can remember it. But the first thing is I was in Paris, which like sounds precious, but that's where I was. I was alone. I was sort of lonely. I spoke shitty French. Like I just didn't have any human connection. And so I was like, I'm going to go to a movie. You know how, when you're in a foreign land, you get hungry for language, right? You want to like, I, would, I wanted to see a movie in English so I could understand something. Yeah, yeah. And that movie was playing at this theater and it had, uh, it was English with French subtitles, I believe. So I could sit there and watch it. And I had seen it before I want to say, but then I went to see it in this theater and I just, you know, when the credits rolled at the end, I was just glued. Uh, I was in the perfect mood for it. And yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, it's grand and it's uh, it's like a grand scale storytelling. Operatic might be a word for yeah. it. And it's a little melodramatic. I mean, they break into song at the end, uh, yeah. which we should we should make note of the fact that nobody breaks into song at the <laughs> end of the rabbit hutch. <laughs> we'll wait uh, and see if yeah. Uh, yeah, a film. But yeah, but anyway, that, that I, you know, same kind of impulse maybe that drew that was driving that film feels like it was driving this novel yeah i mean i think i think everyone in that film is at a point of crisis when we meet them it takes place over a very short amount of time and it's very associatively linked yeah uh, mystical yeah Biblical. And even at the end when the when the like frogs are raining down and the little boy's like this happens this is something that happens i was like right god that feels like I just say that now all the time when something weird, this happens. This is something that happens. <laughs> right. This is something that happens, by the way. This is, it is. Yeah. It's I know. I know. Phenomenon. Yeah. So anyway, to continue your uh, bio a bit, you go to Notre Dame and you study, I want to say you wanted to be a journalist or that was kind of like in your head, I'll be a journalist, but they didn't offer it at Notre Dame. They just offered it in a minor and it wasn't, um, yeah, I went there because I I got free tuition, which was an incredible gift. But they, yeah, they didn't offer a major in journalism at that time. I think it was like a minor or a certificate or something. And I just decided not to pursue it. Okay, yeah. but they did offer creative writing. And yeah. what I love learning about, and I, I've interviewed Joelle McSweeney. It's been a minute. It's been oh, yeah? many years. Yeah, but I know how avant-garde her work is. Yeah. And I just love the fact that in this incredibly traditional institution, they have a creative writing program that is staffed with writers who are this far out there. It's amazing. And yeah. I went to, you know, this is another thing we share in common in a sense, but I went to the University of Colorado. I am told. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, I'll be a film major. I want to tell story. You know, I was very not tuned in maybe the way that I should have been as an undergraduate, but that was the impulse. I knew that I was creative and I wanted to tell stories and, uh, the 
teaching the the uh, faculty in the film program at Boulder incredibly avant-garde at that time especially there was really not any narrative filmmaker on staff yeah it was Stan Brackage I don't know if you're familiar with Stan Brackage but it's like this lineage of like real like he was actually the first filmmaker I believe to film childbirth a real and make a film out of it there's a film he did called window water baby moving which is like a seminal avant-garde film but you know I think it's become much more common in the age of smartphones and even like video cameras. But Stan had like a 16 millimeter (laughs) camera back in like the sixties. And like, that was the first film we were shown as film students at Boulder. And I was like, Hey man, I just want to learn how to make good (laughs) fellows or whatever. But I, I say all of this both with a little bit of scorn for my younger self, not having a deep enough appreciation for what I was exposed to. Like Stan Brackage is a major American artist. Like mm. his films live in, I want to say MoMA or something like that. You know, I didn't, I didn't know how cool that was until it was after the fact. Uh, but I also think that it's useful especially for like a writer like yourself who has written a novel that, I mean, what, it's literary fiction, upmarket, all these categorizations, but I don't think it's avant-garde. You know, I don't think anybody would be like, wow, this is a really impenetrable work of avant-garde fiction. This is a story that like a, like a mainstream reader can dig into, Mm -hmm. but I want to hear you talk about the influence of having instructors who do maybe work in a more avant-garde mode and how useful that can be to somebody who doesn't necessarily want to do that kind of work, but can you know, you can yeah. pull things from it. It was extremely formative for me. I mean, in the very beginning, when I was first exposed to um, the avant-garde work that we were reading, I don't, I don't even, I wish I could just pull out a lot of titles right now, but I can't remember all of it. Um, but I do know I was very frustrated by it at first. I had just been reading Steinbeck and like Franny and Zoe and I, you know, and all the, like the Brontes. And I, I had a very uh, kind of, you know, Victorian model of, of what literature was supposed to be. And I was an English major, so I was reading a lot of fiction from different time periods, but I wasn't really exposed to any contemporary work until my creative writing classes. And I think over time I became, I think because of the kind of generous instruction of certain teachers as well and the way that these texts were analyzed, um, I became really converted to a much more flexible understanding of what the novel could be and how consciousness could be represented on the page, the relationship between language and narrative, the relationship between time and narrative, fragmentation of the self. I think all of these fundamental questions of the novel, which of course means new, became re-energized for me. And by the time I went back to the kind of traditional realism I'd loved, I felt cold. I felt like it left me wanting something. It, it seemed like a betrayal of reality. There's this really good, uh, I think it's a Ben Marcus piece in, in, in the Atlanta, in, in Harper's about Jonathan Franzen. But he says something about how like realism is just so inaccurately named, you know, real reality does not follow anything like the realism that we that we encounter in literature. And so when I when I got to NYU, which was actually much more kind of conventional, uh, I would say there's a huge diversity of styles there, but it was they were all pretty much conventional realism. Whereas I think the professors that I was, you know, encountering in undergrad, they wrote work that had a very kind of cult following and didn't, you know, their main Who were some of these professors? Steve Tomasula, 
Joelle McSweeney was my advisor. Azarine Vanderglee at Illumi. Um, oh, she's been on my show two, oh, twice. She she's yeah. great. Yeah. So at Notre Dame, you're talking about. Yeah, Notre Dame. Yeah. And then at NYU, it was like, uh, I guess, you know, my first professor was Jonathan Safran Foer. And then there was um, uh, Nathan Englander and and Rick Moody and several others, Rivka Galchin, all of whom I think are actually kind of pushing pushing boundaries a little bit. You know, especially Jonathan's work is very formally, I would say formally open, but I was kind of, it was like whiplash because I was coming from this really, really niche, uh, very avant-garde community. And then I had just adjusted to that. And then I got back into the water of kind of contemporary, uh, you know, bestsellers within literary fiction. And I wanted to take the intellectual ambition and the formal experimentation of the work I'd loved in undergrad and then pair it with the kind of human warmth of the realism I had loved and the kind of um, visceral connection that you can feel to characters in, in, in the books that I'd loved. And I think it, it was also the time I was kind of discovering contemporary poetry and I was really interested in a lot of, a lot of the poets I was reading. So yeah, I, it took a while to figure out what I, how I wanted to sound because I had all of these really insane kind of storm of influences, but writers like David Foster Wallace helped me because he's sort of, he's, he's got all the intellectual ambition of the avant-garde stuff, but is I think equally disillusioned with, he called it hellaciously unfun, you know, a lot of the avant-garde work that he was exposed to. I get that. His work is, you know, can be really polyphonic like your book is. And I think David Foster Wallace, one of the things I appreciate as a fellow Midwesterner is like for all of his big brainedness. I mean, the guy was inarguably like a genius or as close to a genius as, you know, I've come across in literature he wrote in this really kind of folksy, he, he like, he knew how to like sand off the edges of his own intellect in a way that Absolutely. made his work more accessible and more fun without losing anything, I feel like. Yeah, I think that's true. And as I listen to you, I'm thinking of your mother letting you make messes and carving ornate patterns into the floorboards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm thinking of the way in which as I was reading your novel, I felt that great, there's such a live mindedness about this book. Same kind of thing that I feel when I read uh, a writer like Wallace, mm. you know, where it gives you energy. You're like, Ooh, like it's very stimulating uh, to me creatively. I think as a creative person, when you read somebody who's operating at that frequency, it's fun because it gives you energy. Mm. And like, for example, uh, there are certain sections of the book where you're just listing off like an apartment number in the rabbit hutch and then you're starting to detail what's happening in that apartment mm -hmm. and you don't really give much expo i don't think you give any exposition so it does this wonderful thing to the reader where it sort of teaches you how to read it you know you have to sort of learn how to read it well thanks for saying that yeah it took me a long time to reach that opening i was have you heard building have you read or experienced building stories by chris ware it's not it's like mm -hmm. a series of comics um, that you can kind of read in any order and it comes in a box that looks like a game. It looks like a board game, but you open it and um, yeah, there, it's a, a series of comics about the inhabitants of this apartment building and each one is really thoughtfully done. It's extremely playful. Some of them don't have any words at all. And yeah, you can, every time you, you go to this series of books, you have a different experience. But I think that was when I started to think about potentially using the structure of the building as a narrative tool. And he was really influential on that front. So 
Young Tess Gunty is at Notre Dame. Is it Notre Dame or Notre Dame? I should know this. As it... we, everyone says Notre Dame, but it's obviously French. But then it's also like a predominantly Irish culture in the the kind of heritage of the school. So, you know, whatever, whatever. My my father would have done a backflip had I gone to Notre Dame. Really? He would never say he would never admit that, but I think he wanted. That was his Anyone dream. Anyone in your family go there? No, none of the kids went. You know, it has but... a very cult like following. I mean, I felt very, very grateful to have gone there at the end of the day. I, I think I was a little bit resistant to staying in my hometown. And I did feel very socially isolated there. I think it was a kind of more conservative student body than I was hoping for. But I, I mean, my classes were like some of the best intellectual experiences I've ever had. The, the faculty there is truly incredible. And especially the English department was just extraordinary. Like you'd have these tiny seminars with geniuses who were giving you their time and were not condescending to you or looking down on you. And the way that that education kind of blew open my understanding of literature and also history and all sorts of other things was extraordinary. But I found the cult-like atmosphere there kind of around football, especially extremely <laughs> weird and alienating. And Touchdown Jesus. Going on. Touch, touch, yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's intense, the it's football intense, thing. Yeah. And, uh, Indiana is an intense place. Like I lived in, I was born in Milwaukee. I've said this a million times on this show, but my childhood was sort of split between the two places. And mm. I, I have like much warmer, fonder feelings for Wisconsin. Not that I don't have tons of great friends. My, my lifelong friends are from Indiana. Those were my formative years, but just, I remember it. Maybe it was a function of adolescence. I don't know. I have a very idealistic memory of like suburban Milwaukee and I feel like Indiana is a place that I fled. <laughs> yeah. You know. Wait, uh, so you, you spent your early childhood in, in Milwaukee and then you moved. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, I was just talking to somebody who recently said that everyone should do this because whatever like childhood you have will be remembered as a golden, as a golden experience. I mean, obviously not everyone, but a lot of childhoods would be remembered as a golden experience if you then weren't forced to also have puberty and high school there in the same place. So if you just leave that place, you all of your memories will be isolated into this like golden hue of that's you know, me, a perfection. And then and then you get to have your shitty experiences in a different place. And then you're like, yeah. hey, this is that's probably what it is because I feel like I'm just my whole life now is just trying to get back to like ice skating on a frozen creek in Milwaukee. Like, yeah, you know going tobogganing. I mean, all this stuff. I just have very fond memories of it. Um, mm, that does sound magical. It was. It was great. So I read that you, as you're, as you're going through undergraduate uh, creative writing studies at Notre Dame, wrote a novella as your thesis. Yeah. And a friend of yours had it bound. Yeah. Yeah. That was really... It's a super meaningful gift. Yeah, I just was writing about this because the New York Times did a kind of buy the book, you know, they interview you about what you're reading. And I, I, the novella that I wrote at that time, in a way, is sort of like the really messy, completely terrible version of what I, I feel like I eventually arrived at in some ways, which often happens, I think, with young artists. You kind of write the same book over and over again until you get to the thing that's you know, the right version of it. Some people do that their whole career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe I will too. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But so it's not the fact that it was like, I, I can't really reread the book, but the gift itself was so meaningful because it was a kind of my friend, Alex, he knew that he was just the kind of person who always understands what people 
the potential. He sees he sees the potential in everybody, and he kind of understands what you need to see about yourself in order to get there. And um, does he do consultation work? <laughs> <laughs> he'll probably run for president at some point. You can vote for him when he does that. But all right, good. Um, yeah, he. So he gave me yeah this beautiful kind of like uh, navy leather bound uh, copy with gold writing. It's actually my favorite cover that I've ever. It's just like gold writing, navy leather. Kind of biblical, maybe. Uh, biblical, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was really quality, like high quality paper, and yeah. And our mutual friend Garrett, he got to blurb it, and it was yeah, it it was really meaningful. I can understand how, but that's powerful too for somebody who's harboring like literary ambitions. Mm-hmm. Just to see the thing in print, yeah. Like to, you know, even if it's not like in bookstores, but just to physicalize or actualize, you know, the, the object, mm-hmm. make it seem a little bit real, makes it seem a little bit more possible. Yeah, I get that. I totally can relate to that. And as I think you alluded to earlier, you then went on to New York uh, to NYU to get your MFA, where you studied with all these great professors and had proximity to the publishing industry. It's a good place to get your MFA. You know, I, mm-hmm. I feel like it's, there's a lot of built-in advantages, like structural advantages to being in New York. close to the epicenter of publishing. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you get there and you have an interesting writing practice. <laughs> you are in prospect park with a notebook and no devices in the heat yeah. <laughs> and humidity of summer. Uh, I think there's one pivotal summer where I feel like a lot of the cast of characters that eventually wind up in the rabbit hutch sort of came to you in what you, I think, kind of like uh, refer to as like heat hallucinations. But that's interesting to me. This is something that you've continued in your life in Los Angeles a bit with uh, the the reservoir and Silver Lake or whatever. Like you like to go outside, get rid of the phone, bring a a pad and paper and books. Yeah. And books, yeah. read and, and just start taking notes. Are you writing fiction in these notebooks or are you just sort of gathering? Mostly it's notes. It's lines of things, um, maybe a scene here and there or like a kind of snippet of dialogue, but it's it's very free form. Yeah, I mean, I I I think the phone is kind of the mortal enemy. I, I just switched to, I mean, I have this light phone now, but I don't, and I don't have social media anymore and I still find it all so uh, overwhelmingly distracting. And so- I mean, obviously it's not by, it's by design. <laughs> they want us to become addicted to it. But yeah, so having time, like time where I'm physically separated from all of that, all of these devices, there's no way I can be checking my email or there's no idea of like someone, someone contacting me. It, it really psychologically, it clears, clears space. And I feel really lucky right now. I don't, I have the time to do that. So yeah, I definitely need time in nature preferably in a space where I can't even hear cars. Like the reservoir doesn't quite do what the what Prospect Park did. Prospect Park, you really, there's this particular part of it that I'd always go to that was completely isolated from from everything. And there were- Which is sort of a corollary for what Blandine does in the Valley. Yeah. There's a park in like Vacavale. Is that the way to pronounce it? Yeah, I mean, I made it. So. Okay, but can we can we etymologize this? What what is vodka? I was you know I meant to Google. I was going to do some deep research and impress you by being like I know where vodkaville <laughs> comes from, but I of course failed to do that. So can you please enlighten me on that? Because I was wondering the whole time I was reading this book. I was told so. I kind of came up with it 
spontaneously because I liked the way it sounded. And then I submitted it to a workshop. And I think Rick Moody was like, does this, this means goodbye, Cal. You're, are you aware? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I think I've tried to research it and there are different things it could possibly mean depending on. But um, I was thinking of Cal Valley, I guess, kind of like a it, the idea that this used to be a very agricultural place and there was a slight dip in the land in this very flat midwestern landscape and so they thought of it as a valley but also maybe I wanted to kind of think about like something about veil adding veil kind of makes it feel mythical and sort of magical and almost like folkloric doesn't and, seem like something I mean, I get, Indiana I mean there's a town in Indiana called French Lick so anything's possible <laughs> yeah but one of the things that was fun for me as a fellow Hoosier is imagining how people in Indiana would pronounce vacavale I'd be like yeah. it'd be vacavale right? yeah that's yeah. how I say it in my head yeah because I think they yeah. would all say that yeah for sure, for sure. So Vacaville is... Vacaville in California, which I didn't know until after I published the book. There's a small place called Vacaville, California. Where? I don't know. I think it's in Northern. I'd have to find it. You sort of have to go, I feel yeah, like. I know. I have to do a pilgrimage. It's got, yeah. You know, you owe it to yourself. You need that. It's too bad you're not on social media because you need that selfie in front of like the <laughs> welcome to Vacaville sign. <laughs> That'd be very surreal. I, I was doing an event in France and I didn't know that Blondine was still a very common, it's like in some parts of France, it's a commonly used name still. And so a man asked me to, to um, sign the book for his daughter who was named Blondine and I had to say, pour Blondine. And I was like, this is so, this is so surreal. You know, wow. I'm writing it to my character. Yeah. It's a lovely name. I, I think I said Blandine. That's a very Indiana pronunciation. I bet most too, people in Indiana would say Blandine. Okay. But Blondine. I thought she would, she would be like, no, it's Blondine. Yeah. It's a cool name. I like that name and it fits her and it yeah. fits, you know, fits the book. She's a very vividly drawn and unique character. A lot of the characters in this book, we should say, you mentioned earlier that they are a lot of them, all of them at some sort of point of crisis, also very eccentric people. And I read that when you were in Prospect Park, melting <laughs> in the heat with your notebook, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in this like desperate attempt to escape technology <laughs> that you, that you were kind of, you know, the way that these characters came to you was with their most eccentric qualities. That was what you had to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then the process of writing the novel over five years was to sort of retrofit them yeah. In a way with qualities and life experiences and relationships that would justify these eccentricities and make them make sense for the reader, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, I wanted to make these qualities feel um, not like explained because I don't think, you know, all of us can, can be explained or by you know, the quotient of all of our experiences, but I did want it to feel like, oh, this is inevitable. This is a natural trajectory for this character. And yeah, I mean, I think I'm drawn to eccentricities in, in people that I meet as well. I feel like that's when you start to really get to know someone is the qualities, the behaviors that they, they haven't assimilated, like they haven't tried to manipulate into con conformity or that they can't manipulate into conformity or, and so I think that's partly why I'm so drawn to eccentricities and people, but also I think I, I did want this novel to have a kind of a slightly unreal sort of shimmer to it and giving everyone these kinds of bizarre behaviors and creating a world in which bizarre phenomena was, was commonplace helped me achieve a kind of, um, yeah, more kind of folkloric distance from the, from 
the real South Bend that I was kind of modeling it on. Yeah, it's like it's interesting. There's a great balancing act happening in this book between that kind of folkloric, otherworldly vibe that it gives off, but also like deeply human, recognizable, contemporary suffering and concerns like all of that stuff and the everydayness and like especially recognizable i think to people who grew up in the midwest the rust belt you know that's the stuff of those places are are very it's very vividly drawn Mm. you know and i appreciate it i appreciate seeing that on the page and i'm sure that was part of your motivation as well because these are not places that wind up in our storytelling all that often yeah, I think I was I was very aware of that by the time I started to write this, that there was a real, um, I thought, within the American imagination, the Rust Belt is kind of underrepresented. And I certainly grew up feeling like the things around me, the urban design around me, the occurrences around me were, were not fit for narrative, like no one else would want to read about that. And I think that it took me a long time to kind of understand the danger of that when you internalize that, that message that the narratives around you and within you are not important or not interesting to others. It divests you of creative and political will, I think. And so in some ways, this was attempt, an attempt to kind of reclaim reclaim this place and also insist that it, why can't this be a site of transcendence? Why can't every little mundane piece of trash or terrible, you know, strip mall of like tanning salons and liquor stores and vape stores be the site of, of, um, something extraordinary happening, you know, something miraculous happening. Well, I feel like too, like these places in the Rust Belt and these kind of post-industrial cities in the Midwest and upper Midwest in some ways have a lot of potential that other less uh, troubled places, economically troubled places might. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. I, I feel, I think of Detroit as an example where there's all this urban blight and all this evacuation or what do you call it? Like people just fled and there's all these neighborhoods that are just sort of sitting there. I, you know, there's points at which they were giving away houses, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, please come take one and mm-hmm. try to revitalize this. But you know, that's obviously not an ideal set of circumstances, but maybe because things have been reduced so much, there's more of like a blank slate, you know, and more, more opportunity for experimentation and renewal. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think my Andrew, my partner, is an urban designer and architect, and his old roommate was from Detroit and also an urban designer architect, went back to Detroit to kind of help revive its landscape. And I do think, like, certainly from an urban design perspective and an urban revitalization perspective, this is the the future is sort of in mid-sized cities and a lot of these places that have been abandoned by industries and sort of left to rot could be sites of amazing, amazing rebirth and energy so what are you going to do when south bend becomes the next hipster capital (laughs) it's going to all come full circle for you you're going to be back there just like in some sort of cool like beautiful park i don't know what they'll do there but i you know i i stumbled into the fact that your partner is an urban designer as i was like prepping for this call and that is another piece of creative DNA that I was like, ah, cause this yeah. is a concern of your book. This is a concern of bland, uh, Blondine. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this, and it, it is also near and dear to my heart as a fellow Los Angelino. If you could please, uh, it's Andrew. Yeah. Andrew. 
could you please have him plan Los Angeles for me? I would appreciate it. He's trying his best. Oh my God. It's a disaster (laughs) here, isn't it? Right. I mean, it's just, I am, I love it here. I have a lot of affection for it. There's so much great stuff about Los Angeles. So I don't want to, you know, negate that. But but it's an urban disaster. Yeah. It's an urban disaster and it is ruined by real estate developers. And if my wife are in the room, I've, I've said this before on this show enough times that listeners will be rolling their eyes. My wife would definitely be like silencing my microphone. <laughs> but uh, I just, I'm like, they ruined it. They ruined it. This could be the greatest city in the world. Yeah. We should all be riding bicycles on a green yeah. belt right now. And they fucked it up because oh, they yeah. wanted money. Oh yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the the car dependence here is really at the root of all evil. I think that right. the suburban sprawl is the fundamental problem. And then people become really dependent on the kind of independence or like privacy that that can grant them. And and then they become really resistant to all sorts of changes that would make everything better. Well, I think we have a plan now. Your friend Alex, who's going yeah. to be the president, <laughs> can appoint your yeah. partner Andrew with some. He can endow him with some sort of like Robert Moses like power in there Los you Angeles, go. but a good version of Robert that's right, Moses. Yeah. benevolent Robert Moses. Benevolent and, Robert uh, Moses. And by the way, Robert Moses factors in in a very funny way to your novel. That's another little data point in this urban planning concern of the book, which I found very funny. The fact that this character, uh, Moses, who is the son, I mean, these storylines are great, but I mean, he's the son of a kind of a lifelong Hollywood television star who is not a great mom and who writes her own obituary. I mean, that is an awesome I mean, all, all this, this whole book is written so beautifully, but like, I particularly enjoyed Elsie, you know, my mind is so bad. Elsie Bright, Elsie Blitz, Elsie Blitz. Blitz. Yeah. So Elsie Blitz is the TV star. Her son, Moses has this like biblical name, but of course he's named after this evil (laughs) (laughs) real estate who she found delightful. You know, it's just, I laughed. I laughed. If you know about Robert Moses and you've read the Robert Caro book, then it's especially you know, darkly funny, but I assume that's something that's on your radar, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much of the urban design, like I, I started dating Andrew the summer I started writing this book. And so I was like, finally learning about cities and how they, how they were made. And I think I just assumed that cities just appeared sort of like ecosystems. I don't know. I never thought about how they were intentionally planned and programmed. And so I started to think, and I was living in New York and he was living in DC. And so I just started to think about cities so differently. And I'd already started writing this book and I thought, oh, it'd be perfect if there was like a kind of uh, a, a redevelopment scheme going on here that was, uh, that the residents really distrust, like that Blondine specifically didn't trust. And there was at one point a really long chapter where she just, she was like, um, it was like her speech that she was going to give at one of these meetings about her intense criticism, like an in-depth criticism of the, of the redevelopment plan. And in the Valley, in this park in Vacaville. Yeah. And, and uh, I was like reading, you know, Sherry, Arndt. he had like a bunch of papers out cause he was writing his, his thesis for a master's program at the time. And I was like reading all of them and referencing them. My editor was like, I don't know. This, this seems more like a kind of academic paper than, fiction but it's now in the like there's like a special edition in the uk and they wanted extra content so i put it in there so i was rereading it recently i was like oh i really got in the weeds at one point like via blondine like she's yeah she's she is giving this this uh, in-depth critique of the of the revitalization plan yeah i'm thinking of the the version i read it feels like scaled back yeah it's like almost alluded to you know her distaste yeah and i actually think she's kind of like i kind of wrote it as 
I think she's right to oppose the Valley destruction, but I think she also has a kind of, she's very critical simply because this is the last thing that she feels she can protect and save. And, you know, maybe the developers will be good. Who knows? Maybe they'll. I was just right. Like it's been very gray in Los Angeles for the past month because of, you know, they call it May gray, June gloom, Mm -hmm. the temperatures warming up outside, but then the, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but we get clouds this time of year. Yeah. Usually they burn off by midday, but they've been extra persistent. I think it might have something to do with all the rain that we got this winter and spring. Mm -hmm. But I have to say Los Angeles is intended to be viewed in sunshine. Yeah. It's just, it's more ugly. It's uglier. My friend was just saying, I was just, yeah, she was like, like I start seeing trash everywhere. You see, it just seems dirtier. (laughs) Everything kind of just feels pretty Midwestern. Actually, you're kind of like, I I thought, oh, this just, there are so many streets that just could be from Indiana here. Um, And you think you're going to this great urban metropolis, but actually it's because of the car dependence. It's a lot of just like one story, you know, strip malls and bad development. Bad development. Yeah. So I think I was like, in my head, as I was driving this morning, I was having a conversation with Mayor Karen Bass. I was like, can you just like by decree, just be like, you can't build this ugly shit anymore. (laughs) I wish it worked like that. And it's funny because I've thought about this and it, it seems like one of the only enduring benefits of authoritarian political (laughs) rule is their ability to if they have decent taste and some yeah. good architects at hand to aggrandize themselves and to city plan without any kind of obstruction. Like I think of Napoleon, you know, in France and Paris, like a lot of these European capitals, I don't know. I don't have a good enough grasp of history, but I feel like that's where it usually happens, right? Where they build cities in a way that makes sense for people, this incredibly over the top architecture and the care with which things are built. Yeah. How do we build that sort of stuff within a capitalist framework? It almost has to be done to aggrandize the tyrant, right? Yeah. <laughs> Although I also think part part of the reason why they're so uh, human, like the where most cities in Europe are so human, is because they were all built before the car. So that's right. They were not. I mean, obviously, the craftsmanship was just completely different as well, and there was yeah more interest in sort of glorifying the church. Glorif- there was more interest in glorifying things other than money itself. Yeah, the church is another, I mean, the church is another uh, way for beautiful buildings to get built. Yeah. So I don't know what the answer is, but I'm glad that Andrew is on the task and (laughs) awaiting his grand solution. This is like 90% (laughs) of the conversations that happen in this this apartment are about the terrible urban design of Los Angeles. Of course, yeah. So getting back to New York, uh, MFA, Tess Gunty, studying with all these professors, having these visions in Prospect Park, (laughs) beginning to write this book and share it. At what point did it start to have legs? Like at what point were you getting like a sense like, wow, this could really be something. And was the feedback positive in workshop? And Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like at what point did you start to feel like you had a book? Yeah. I mean, I think it was two things. I was in Rick Moody's workshop and I had been working on two different projects. I'd been working on the rabbit hutch, which was sort of my secret project that I was like, I'm never going to show this to anyone. Cause I just, I'm just writing it for myself. And then there was this uh-huh. project that I thought was going to be my first novel. And I, I had, uh, it was, it took place in this kind of dystopian, uh, agricultural community in the Midwest where all of the women were dying and it followed the last female who was alive in this town. And 
a beach read. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a cheerful, cheerful person. Um, right. There was that one was really language driven and it wasn't very funny. It was, you know, it was very somber. And and then I was working on this other one, which was I think Lydia Davis had come to our program and given a, a kind of master class. And it was one of the most useful just series of of she just gave this kind of list of advice and it was unbelievably useful. And one of her pieces of advice was to always have something that's just for you that you're working on that you're not going to show anyone until it's done. So that was my attempt. But, but then that, it became the thing. Yeah, I guess what happened was I, I had submitted this other thing that I'd been working on really, really intensely for, for over a year at that point to my workshop with, with Rick and he just tore it apart. And he was just like, this is a, this, he, he basically told me to start over and I was really depressed after that. And I couldn't really write for a couple weeks. And by the time it was my turn to submit something again, I didn't have anything except for this secret project I'd been working on. And so I had to submit it. And he was like, this is your project. This is the thing you need to be working on. And, and then he became my advisor. And so I worked on it with him. But I think also there was this other moment where it was like, I had to choose, you know, I still, I still hadn't fully given up on that other project. And I had to, I got to the point where I had to choose an advisor. I had to choose a project to work on for my thesis. And I was, I was seeing the psychoanalyst at the time and I described both projects to him and I, and he was actually a painter and a, he did visual art as well. And so he, his stuff was in the MoMA, which he didn't ever mention to me until. <laughs> Contains <laughs> multitudes. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but he had also worked on MFA faculty. So sort of like also an art artistic advisor <laughs> to me and go in there for artistic advice. But um, he was like, I think when I described them both, I was like, I'm just so much more drawn to this dystopian thing. I feel like, and, and then I described the rabbit hutch and I just kind of told him about a few of the characters and what was going on. And he started to laugh and he'd never laughed in any of our sessions before. And he laughed so hard and he'd never laughed again. But I felt like, something about that reaction from someone made me want to pursue it. And that was another reason why I chose it. So I guess I wrote about a little over 130, I wrote 130 pages for the thesis itself. And um, at that point, I still didn't think, I didn't necessarily think that this was ever going to be published or turned into anything, but I just chipped away at it for the next, I guess, four years. And eventually it was a novel, but it was very slow. The first 130 pages happened very quickly and then the rest were painstaking. Well, a couple things that I'm hearing that resonate is, first of all, this notion of the thing that's closest to your heart being the thing that you should write. Mm. How many times on this show have, have I heard a story like this where it's like, well, I don't know, like the book didn't come alive until I started to get really into the stuff that mattered the most to me or... I had this thing that I was working on on the side or I was avoiding it, whatever it is, but that's always the thing that's going to resonate with readers. And then something that might be more specific to you and you can agree, disagree with me if you think I'm wrong, but you know, you, you have a, you have some serious concerns as I guess, as do we all, but, uh, you know, an intellectual person, somebody who likes to grapple with big ideas and learn and read books. You have acad an academic family. You know, it makes sense to me that you would be this way. And you strike me as somebody who's really sincere. Mm. Uh, right? <laughs> yeah, I've been accused of being godless yeah. before. <laughs> Not in any kind of pejorative sense. I'm just trying to like, I'm just trying to, you know, 
make sense of you real quick. Uh, <laughs> I didn't I can, do that psychoanalyst. I should have just come on the show and then we just come on the show. But I think, no, but I think like this could be instructive for others as well. It might be instructive for me, especially when you're writing about difficult stuff or stuff that troubles you or stuff that pisses you off or you care about deeply. If you're trying to make that stuff palatable to a reader, it can be useful to ventilate it with humor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the fact that your psychoanalyst laughed. And you know, that's it's such a funny effect that this book has because it's not like a goofy, silly, high comedic novel, but it's got this really like I, I love this kind of humor where like like the Robert Moses reference, you know, like this is like maybe nerd humor. I don't know. But it works on a it works like in this great subterranean way. And maybe that can be a takeaway for people listening. Maybe it's probably, I imagine it might be something that you carry through into future projects where that element might need to be there Mm -hmm. in order for the thing to like fully come to life. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, uh, Joy Williams, I think is a kind of master of humor. And I think this book came alive to me. I started writing this book after I read The Quick and the Dead by Joy Williams, which has this extremely sort of, uh, it's hard to describe the humor, but I think it often results from her just kind of looking the dark matter of life in the eye. And so that can create a very uh, scary moment, a very uncanny moment that can be, it can be very sad, but very often it creates this kind of wonky, humor because you're seeing something anew and you're seeing you're seeing something that's familiar with like one thing that's kind of altered to make it new again and she she has this way of sort of getting to the getting to the heart of the thing without ever explicitly stating it yeah so i learned so much from her i feel like the humor in this book kind of i i learned how to i learned the tone from from joy williams and i like this idea of sitting still and staring into the darkness (laughs) and like, and then like at the point at which you feel like you should look away, you keep staring. And like, maybe that's where you find the humor. Yeah. I mean, so many comedians are, you know, are quite depressed people when you talk to them and, you know, like really hard on themselves and very difficult, you know, with very difficult lives. I think humor is a classic coping mechanism, but it also results from simply refusing to look away from something and kind of insisting on seeing it, you know, for what it actually is. I like the idea of you at the Silver Lake Reservoir working on the next like great American novel. And meanwhile, like really depressed comedians are walking past you like, <laughs> listening to podcasts or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. This is, and, and this is, this delights me. This is the ecosystem that we live here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which is one of its redeeming qualities. I love the creative juice of this town, even though it can be annoying and onerous too, but yeah. You know, you're surrounded by all these people and who, you know, you never know. Like I ride my bike around the reservoir sometimes. So at some point I won't bother you because I know you'll be in deep meditation, but you might hear me. You'll see this strange middle-aged man with a helmet on. (laughs) I will like ring my bell, Uh, but you just never know who you're passing by and what they're up to. And that's kind of cool to think about. Yeah. And you wrote, this is the novel of your twenties, right? You wrote this book in your twenties. Yeah. You won the National Book Award for fiction at age 30 for your debut novel. That's pretty heady My brother stuff. always says it's all, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't think so, but it's an extraordinary thing to have happened. It, it does not happen often. To win the award doesn't happen often. To win for your debut does not 
happen often to win at age 30 does not happen often. So remarkable and well-deserved. I always, whenever I talk to a prize winner, I'm always curious to know where they were when they heard the news. <laughs> I like to see that scene. Can you paint that for us a little bit? Like, where were you when you found out? I guess you were at this I was ceremony. At the ceremony. Yeah, no one, right. no one actually knows before it's announced. Not even your right. publisher. But um, yeah, like the Pulitzer somebody like emails you, <laughs> or like really you see it on. Do know beforehand? Well, you see it on Twitter. I mean, they just announce it. Oh, it's they like just announce it live, right? I know. I it's out of the blue. Yeah. And so uh, I was just talking to Ernan Diaz, and he was like at in South Carolina on tour for his paperback. And he was like getting like chicken and waffles and got the news on his phone and like walked outside and was like weeping. And then these like three nice old Southern ladies came up to him and they all started hugging him. (laughs) Yeah. It was like this delightful scene, but you were at the award show or, you know, at the, they have a live ceremony where they announce it. And I think, what was it? Uh, Ben. Ben Fountain. Ben Fountain, who has guested on this show and whose name just escaped me. Uh, he was the one who handed you the uh, medal, I believe. Is that the way it goes? It's, a, it's this massive statue. It's like oh, okay. 15 pounds. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So um, how do you process that? I I don't, I really don't think I have actually since then. Cause I've been, I think I left my body and I really can't overstate how thoroughly convinced I was that I was not, it was no, there's no possible way that I was going to win it. Like I was already so astonished that I was on the short list. And then that was so much more than enough for me. And I, I really like deeply internalized that it would not be me. So I guess this is like, my mom's like, that's a coping mechanism. Here's a defense mechanism. Psychological protection. I guess I always do that. But, um, but I, yeah, it's very hard for me to overstate how truly shocked I was by by that and it's the last one of the night so by then everyone's drunk I was like <laughs> we'd like had so much wine and food and I was like Keanu Reeves had been the voice of the announcement everything was already so otherworldly um was yeah. Keanu Reeves there or he was just well, a voice sadly, over? he was just a voice floating oh. above us like god but, but still I mean yeah would have been hilarious. I would have just loved to hear Keanu Reeves. I guess, what did he say? Like he announced your book, like, he like just, the, they had he, the VO. He introduced, I guess they did like a little video of every, uh, you know, before the award was announced of each book. And it's called a package, I believe. Yeah. I, my wife has worked in uh, award shows before, so I go. know these things. <laughs> yeah, I guess that was what he did. He So he did the voiceover for that one. But no, I mean, it's, it's so enormous that it really exceeds language. And I feel like I still don't really understand how to process it. Um, it's brought a lot of, there are so many like practical benefits that it brought right away, which is mostly just more readers, more interest. Um, and that has been kind of useful because it's helped me believe that it really did happen. Um, <laughs> there are like material consequences. Um, yeah. But um yeah, I, I really, I, I'm, I'm just at a loss for words when I try to describe it because it's, it's so, it's so unbelievable. It just. It's a huge achievement. This book is incredible. Uh, it's like really, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a big swing and you land it. One of the things I admire so much about it is like you land each chapter and even each, like if there is a section break, you'll, I feel like you have such an uncanny ability to land the chapter on a great line. Mm. The book ends on a great line. Like you just, it just feels done. You know, it's like fully cooked and, uh, and ambitious 
in scale and wildly there's like a it's like we were talking about earlier this like kind of wild mindedness to it that's really fun and inspiring it kind of brings from a you know from a readerly slash writerly perspective brought to my attention possibilities and mm -hmm. i think it has the effect on me that you know when you're sitting in the park i keep referring to you sitting in the park in high heat i hope you have like a nice sun hat you know you're yeah. fair-skinned uh, you, know, you got to make sure especially here in los angeles I, uh, but i feel like it's generative and it gives you energy that's the way this book read to me and i also read there's this great poetic quality to the prose, and I know you mentioned it earlier, but we didn't talk about it, is how big into poetry you are. This is something else you and I share in common. I love to read poetry, not only just because I, I love the, I love the, like poetry as a vessel for like really wonderfully condensed deep thought. Mm -hmm. It's incredible when you're in the hands of a good poet to read mm -hmm. something that is that economical, but that profound. Yeah. And I also think that it is maybe the best thing for me when it comes to the kind of generative energy giving feeling that I was just describing with respect to your novel. Like I love to read poetry as a way to sort of grease the wheels before I write. And I think you're the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's sort of like a shot of espresso versus like a long, a huge cup of coffee of drip coffee, which is what it seems. I mean, I also poetry just kind of, for me, the good stuff, it sort of asserts there's this essay by T.S. Eliot about Dante that I read so, so many years ago, so I won't be able to quote it properly, but he is kind of arguing like good poetry will assert its meaning in your body before you kind of understand what it means. There's something about it that's very visceral and animal, kind of like a dream logic that this series of images will have an effect on you and you might not even understand why. And that's the kind of alchemy of poetry that I find so compelling. It's like there's something that's sort of maybe because it's so it's so engaged with all of your senses and it's also it does kind of operate more like a dream where there's this associative very image driven logic to it but um it just activates my mind in a way that fiction actually rarely does before I write yeah so I love I mean just I have a bunch of poetry right here but there's this book called a sand book by Ariana Raines which I read as I was revising my my novel for the last time with Kanaf before it, before it went to print. And um, I would like sit, this is, it's a really long collection, but I would sit down and read these poems out loud to myself before I wrote. And there was something about the, the kind of musicality and the kind of, um, there's like an animal part of you that reacts to it, which is really useful. So last question, I always ask people, as I'm wrapping up, if they're working on anything else. Uh, yeah. Is this the case for you? Yeah. I, I have um, about 100 pages of a second novel drafted. and um, Is this Honeydew? Am I just, I just yeah. remembering. Is it called Honeydew still? It, that's the working title, yeah. But, um, okay. Yeah, I, I have, it's still so in flux that I am reluctant to, to talk about it too much, but I do know that it'll probably be structured in a triptych and follow three different individuals after an event that kind of um, they experience together in their 20s and it follows them later in life. Okay. Well, it has been a delight to meet you and to talk with you and to okay. catch you as what the paperback of The Rabbit Hutch is now in print. 
Yeah, I mean, I just got my copies. I think it's going to publish officially in a couple weeks. Like, well, but by the time this goes live, yeah. it will be at large. Yeah. So people listening who have not read it should pick it up. And I appreciate the time. And we'll look forward to whatever you come up with next. Great to meet you. Best of luck. Thank you. On Honeydew or whatever it ends up being called. And I wish you well. Thank you. Thanks for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. All right, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Tess Gunty, author of the National Book Award winning novel, The Rabbit Hutch, available now in trade paperback from Vintage. You can find Tess on the internet. Her official website is tessgunty.com. Again, the book is called The Rabbit Hutch. It is Tess Gunty's debut novel. It is superb. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is available. The entire archive, nearly 850 episodes and counting. This is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoyed your experience, I hope you will consider supporting this program over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get another People t-shirt, they're soft, they fit well, you can get a t-shirt at the show's official website, otherppl.com. They come in men's sizes, women's sizes, different colors. Check it out over at otherppl.com. If you would like to receive my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes, I would appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a rating. Write a review if that's an option. It helps new listeners find the show. Subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. You can watch this podcast over on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have feedback for me, you can write to me. The uh, official email address for this podcast is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, I have a novel out, my latest novel. Got to give it a plug. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So, coming up next on The Other People Show, there will be a Friday flashback, another cut from the archives which I've been doing lately so stay tuned for that on Friday and then on Sunday I'm going to have another craft work episode for you I will be in conversation with Chelsea Hodson author and founder of a new independent press called Rose Books it's very exciting Chelsea and I are going to be talking about how to start your own indie press so stay tuned